0: Welcome to On DoD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Now your host, Jared Serbu. And thanks a lot for joining us this week. You may have seen some headlines over the past couple weeks about the fact that DoD is requesting voluntary refunds from an aerospace parts supplier called Transdime. Those requests from the Army and the Defense Logistics Agency are based on a new audit of the company's contracts by the DoD Inspector General. Those audit findings are pretty striking. The IG looked at 47 transdime contracts and found that the company made excess profits in 46 out of the 47. The markups ranged from a fairly modest 17 percent to more than 4,400 percent. And bear in mind those those findings are based on a fairly small sample of the company's DoD contracts. The ones that the the IG looked at had a value of less than 30 million dollars overall. Meanwhile, Transdime had about 1.3 billion dollars in defense-related business in 2018. And, and that gets us to the larger point. From from the IG's perspective, this is not just about getting a, a relatively small refund back to DOD. And it's not just about one company either. It's about the fact that it's relatively easy for a company to mark up its parts pretty dramatically when it's the only supplier and when its contracts happen to follow, fall below the Truth and Negotiations Act threshold. Because in those cases, contracting officers can certainly ask to see the company's cost data to help figure out if they're getting a a fair and reasonable price, but the company can just say no, which is exactly what Transdime did. We're going to dig into the IG report and its findings and what the OIG thinks DOD and Congress ought to do about it now with Teresa Hull. She is the Assistant Inspector General for Acquisition, and she led the audit team's work on this. I think the way I'd like to get into this, Teresa, is, is to have you talk a little bit about what you found about what Transdime's business model is, their, their defense business in particular, because it's a little bit unusual. I'm not sure I ever, I've, I've ever seen anything quite like it. So can you walk us through how they do business with DOD as far as you can tell?
1: Sure. Uh, Transdime supports numerous DOD weapon systems, including aircraft and ships, And about 75% of their net sales are from products where Transdime is the sole source provider of the product. And we found that from about April 2012 to January 2017, um, there were about $471 million in contracts with DOD. And to take it to our recently issued Transdime report, there, they, uh, there were about 39 of, se- of the 47 parts in our sample in which Transdime was the sole source provider. And uh, Transdime uses a value-based pricing technique. And what I mean by that is that the price of the product or service is based on the economic value it offers to the customer, not necessarily the cost of that product or service. Um, And, you know, when DOD only has one source for the part and that part is needed to operate a weapons platform, the value of that part to DOD then is very high, even if the cost to manufacture the part may be very low. So I thought it'd be helpful to provide an example that we found um, in our audit. Yeah, please. Um, So if if there's, so for example, there was a very small part um, that DLA purchased for an airplane. And this part only cost about a few hundred dollars to make and DLA ended up paying almost a 2,000% profit on the part. So again, thousands of dollars more than what it cost. Um, When we dug into the purchase history for that small part, we noticed two things. Um, One is that the part price was inflated the very first time that DLA purchased the part and that the part price had continued to increase several thousand dollars over the last 10 years
0: now I don't I don't know if this is going too far or if this goes beyond your actual findings but it seems to me that this this is a deliberate strategy or has been on the part of Transdime to make acquisitions of small suppliers where that supplier is the only provider to DoD is that is that fair
1: well, I, I can't um, speak for Transdime on their strategy necessarily, but what I, what I can say is that we found um, about 12 parts in which the prices for those parts significantly increased after Transdime purchased the company.
0: Interesting. So broadly, across, across all the parts that you audited, briefly tell us what you found in terms of what, what you determined to be excess profits.
1: So across our sample, we, we found about 16.1 million in excess profits, and in order to determine that 16.1 million, we, um, we ab- obtained uncertified cost data from Transdime, and we determined a 15 percent benchmark for profit. So we took an average of the profit of other contracts that purchased similar parts for aircraft and ships. But that the contracts were large enough um, for the contracting officers to obtain cost data, and that's how we determined um, profit ranges from 11 percent to 4,400 percent, and that's what um, makes up the 16.1 million in, in excess profit.
0: Uh, of that sample, how, 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 I mean, how much does that represent of Transdime's total business with the Army, with DLA, with DOD
1: broadly? So that the sample makes up 47 parts, so we looked at 47 parts in total, and that is about $29.7 But now to speak globally to Transdime's net sales, um, in 2018 their net sales were about $3.8 billion, um, with defense sales being about 35 percent of that.
0: So it's probably not crazy to speculate that there's probably a lot more excess profit than what you were
1: able to detect in your audit. Well, we looked at 47 parts and found 40, out of the 47, 46 had excess profit. So, you know, we were limited to the number of parts we looked at, but it could be possible um, that there was excess profit for other parts.
0: All right, fair enough. So one of the things that you address in your report is there are actually a bunch of ways that an individual contracting situation can can end up in a scenario where the company does not have to provide either certified or even uncertified cost and pricing data. So, so can you walk us through what some of those I don't want to call them loopholes are, but what some of those scenarios would be?
1: Sure. Um, so currently sole source providers and manufacturers of spare parts um can avoid providing uncertified cost data, even when it's requested of them, because there are less stringent requirements when small dollar value contracts are awarded and when commercial item contracts are awarded. So when I mean small dollar value, it's um, small dollar contracts under a simplified acquisition threshold. So at the time that we did the audit, um, it was $150,000 was the SAT, was the is what they call it. And now that value has increased to $250,000. And um, the TINA threshold, or the Truth and Negotiations Act threshold, um, was $750,000, and now it's $2,000,000. Um, also, there's no specific requirement in the Federal Acquisition Regulation or in the Defense Federal Acquisition Re- Regulation supplement that even requires or compels contractors to provide certified or uncertified cost data to the contracting officer when they request it. Um, to give you an example, to tie it back to TransDyme, um, contracting officers in our case requested uncertified cost data from Transdime 15 times and never received any uncertified cost data for those parts. And then I would say statutory and regulatory requirements discourage contracting officers from asking for uncertified cost data. Um, The FAR actually lists six other options for the contracting officers to consider before they um, request uncertified cost data. And to take it to the Defense Federal Acquisition Acquisition Regulations Supplement, um, they list cost data as the last item to go to when determining price reasonableness for both commercial and non-commercial items. And then when you look at the um, National Defense Authorization Act of 2016, within that, um, it was reemphasized that using uncertified cost data should be a last resort when procuring major weapon system um, commercial items. And again, that's after exhausting five other options. And
0: it, it seems, though, that even though there are all these discouragements in the FAR and the DFARS and in statute, contracting officers in in this transdime case felt the need to ask for sort of certif- ask for some kind of cost and pricing data anyway. Did did they talk to you about why they felt that was necessary?
1: Well, they felt it was necessary um, to determine the price reasonableness of the particular part
0: but by implication it seems like they couldn't determine or they had suspicions <laughs> that they were being overcharged is that fair
1: well again i can't speak for the particular contracting officer in that situation however they they did Feel the need, or they apply their professional um, judgment and discretion to request it. So, in in their in their actions and in their determination of what that price should be, they felt that they needed more information. Right. So they they reached out for it. Unfortunately, in this case, Transzyme didn't provide it in the 15 times that they were asked.
0: And in a sole source situation like this, as the contracting officer, your options are basically either not follow through with the contract and don't get the part you need, or or wait around until, you know, for, for cost data that may never come, right? You, you, you really don't have many choices in a sole source situation.
1: Right. In a, in a sole source situation, um, there aren't any market forces or competitive pricing strategy to control pricing. So it ultimately comes down to a situation in which if a contractor doesn't want to provide the cost data, they don't have to, and if the mission need is important enough for that contracting officer to make sure it's not interrupted, then they end up in a situation where they have to purchase the price regardless.
0: One thing I wondered about as I was reading the report is, I mean, how did it come to be that almost all of these contracts were below the, the the TINA threshold? I think there was only one that wasn't. I mean, were they deliberately structured that way to be small dollar value individual contracts, or is it just the nature of buying the kind of parts DOD was buying?
1: Well, it's it's several factors, and I, I can't speak to whether TransDive intentionally kept them under the, the threshold or not. But um, there was only one part that was over, and I will say for that part, um, we did find a reasonable profit percentage of 11%, and they did provide some information to the contracting officer. So whether it was intentional or not, I guess I can't say. However, there are you know the way the regulations are currently written, if you stay under the threshold, there's a less burdensome requirement to provide information.
0: Teresa Hull is the Assistant DOD Inspector General for Acquisition. She's back with us after a short break, and we'll talk more about the Transdime Report and her office's recommendations to DOD on those sole-source cost-reasonableness situations. This is on DOD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbio. Back on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. Talking with Teresa Hull, the Assistant DoD Inspector General for Acquisition. She led the IG's work on a new audit of DoD's contracts with an aerospace part supplier called Transdime. As we've been discussing, the audit found Transdime made excess profits on 46 of the 47 contracts the IG looked at, mainly because DoD's contracting officers had no access to the company's cost data, and these are situations where there are no competing vendors. So we're talking about one company here where you found widespread excess profits. What, what do we, based on your prior work, what do we know about how potentially widespread this kind of thing might be? Because, you know, as we said earlier, Transdime seems to have a sort of unique business strategy as it relates to DOD. But but, how widespread do we think excess profits might be in, this, in these kinds of transactions?
1: So I think it's important to point out that we, we first reported concerns with Transdime in 2006. In fact, we, have, we had very similar findings in that 2006 report that we do in our 2019 report. Um, and we even have some repeat parts that came up in 2006 and 2019. And um, you know, in, in, in addition to that, over the last 16 years, we have had multiple spare parts pricing audits. In fact, we have about 32 reports. And in those 32, of those 32 reports, in 20 of them, our findings were that they did not determine fair and reasonable pricing. So there's there's very similar themes, and we've seen it before in, in this report and in, in, in our body of work where um, contracting officers were denied uncertified cost data and that there was excess profits charged for parts. To give you an example of another report, um, a contracting officer or the contractor delayed responses to requests that the contracting officer made for supporting data on 22 occasions until the need to sustain that military aircraft in support of a DoD mission became urgent. And in that case, the contracting officer went ahead and purchased the part so that the mission would not be negatively in- affected. And that's a common theme um, that you know relates to this past report, this TransDime report, in which you know our contracting officers asked 15 times um, and were denied each of those times. So it, it, it's not an um, uh, anomaly. Um, this has occurred in, in in the past in several of our uh, audit findings.
0: And you said there are themes. Are, are there identifiable underlying causes to, to all this? I mean, is it just that there are too many sole source situations in the DoD spare parts market?
1: So I would say anytime a part or service can only be purchased from one Manufacturer, there is a risk that the government's going to be overcharged for that part or service. Um, that's why it's important that contracting officers have access to uncertified data when they determine that it's necessary.
0: We haven't mentioned this yet, but I, I just want to make sure that we note that you, you found that there was no wrongdoing on the part of any of the DoD acquisition workforce with regards to all of this, right?
1: And, and that's a great, uh, a great point. And I do want to emphasize that. The uh, DOD contracting officers for this Transdime audit followed the statutory and regulatory requirements when determining price reasonableness. Now that's one side of it. Now the the negative side of that is they followed the current statute and and rules, but it still resulted in $16.1 million in excess profits. And the reason for that is because contracting officers don't have the tools they need to get the cost data from the contractors even once they request it. And um, the lack of tools are um, some, some like, more examples of that are you know, part prices have become inflated over time. Um, you know, some were inflated at the time that the government first purchased it. And once prices are part of a purchase history, those those historical data points are then used by subsequent contracting officers to determine price reasonableness of future purchases. So over time, these part prices could increase and therefore, you know, compounding the problem.
0: Getting back to your earlier point about discouraging requesting pricing data, does that historical price basis fall in the hierarchy as as you know, more of a priority than requesting cost data? Sure or a more pref- more preferred approach is really what I
1: mean? Yes. Um, it, it is historical pricing information is um, easier to attain for contracting officers. There's certain databases that they can um, tap into. Um, it's it's more so when we get into more of the cost data that, that it, they often struggle in obtaining from contractors.
0: So you are able to gather an enormous amount of data and make pretty precise calculations about how how large the excess profits were. What tools did you have that contracting officers didn't? Why couldn't they do this work?
1: So that, that's also a great question. Um, and we we were provided cost data, or uncertified cost data, I should say. And the contracting officer was unable to, to, uh, to receive it. And I can't make that leap or tell you why we got it and they didn't, um, other than perhaps the fact that we have um, through the IG Act, the ability to obtain information upon request. But I can't guess why Transdime did not provide it to the contracting officer.
0: But really the answer is you got the cost data and they didn't.
1: Yes, at the end of the day, we got the uncertified cost data, which is why we were able to calculate to a precise uh, number what we thought the uh, fair and reasonable price should have been. So what's
0: the upshot of all this? I mean, you you have some very specific recommendations for for regulatory changes to to start getting after this problem. Talk us through uh, some of those recommendations.
1: So some of the newest legislative and regulatory changes have actually made it more difficult for contracting officers to get information that they need. Um, like, I, like I mentioned earlier, the TINA threshold increased from 750000 to $2 million. That weakens the contracting officer's ability to obtain certified cost data. The uh, simplified acquisition threshold increased from $150,000 to $250,000. So these changes make it even easier for contractors to avoid providing cost data to contracting officers. And then contracting officers, in turn, will have less insight into the contractor's cost data. So if contracting officers will have to depend even more on the uncertified cost data through some of these higher um, increases in thresholds, and they don't have tools, Currently available to them to a, to um, obtain data from contractors, it puts them in a very um, it puts them at an extreme disadvantage because they won't they may not be able to determine whether or to obtain the information that they need to to make decisions. So federal and DoD acquisition policies still do not contain a mechanism that provides contracting officers the ability to obtain uncertified cost data from contractors when they request it. And we, uh, we, in this report, we say, we, we provide a recommendation that statutory and regular regulatory changes need to be made to give contracting officers a better chance at obtaining uncertified cost data from contractors. And you know, when they purchase uh, parts produced or provided, especially from sole source contractor. And to talk you through one of, one of the recommendations or the specific recommendation, we, um, we recommended to the defense pricing and contracting principal director to examine the, the US Code, Federal Acquisition Regulation, Defense Federal Acquisition Regulation supplements, and um, to determine if changes are needed in the acquisition process of parts produced or provided from a sole source contractor.
0: So you mentioned the SAT and the TINA thresholds. Those would have to uh-huh. be changed by Congress if they're going to be changed. What you know, Out of all the recommendations you made, how much could DOD do on its own?
1: We we make re- recommendations in the report um, for voluntary refunds, um, but really the, the the point that I want to emphasize is that this report is is more than just about getting refunds. It's really about making permanent changes in the acquisition system. So so DoD again has to examine the different portions in the code and the regulations that need to change and to make potentially a legislative proposal, uh, write a legislative proposal to Congress to make some of these changes. And you're right, it's not anything they can do on their own. However, they are in a position to start that conversation for change.
0: I I think – I don't have any congressmen here in the room with me, but I think that the the advocates uh, and and the congressional committees who ultimately raised those thresholds for Tina and and Sat would say that the reason to do that is it makes the entire acquisition system less cumbersome, especially for small vendors who – don't want to deal with the the whole process of having a certified cost accounting system and go through the whole rigmarole of turning over certified pricing data or even uncertified pricing data in some businesses. In some cases, they're just going to take their they're going to take their work elsewhere. So how do you how do you strike a balance here between making sure contracting officers get the information they need to feel like they're getting a fair and reasonable price, and not making the system so burdensome that that no private company wants to go through it.
1: We saw the same problems with TransDime in 2006 during that audit, and it's more than 10 years later and we're still finding the same problem. So I guess I pose the question, will we be in the same position in another 10 years if nothing is done um, from the statutory or regulatory framework perspective regarding changes for sole source acquisition environments? You know, the government lacks the tools necessary to obtain information they need. And I understand the balance and the intent of of some of the raising of the SAT and TINA thresholds. However, there still needs to be a balance between contracting officers being able to get that uncertified cost data. And um, given the most recent project and our body of work in pricing, tools need to be put into place to ensure that those contracting officers can get the information they need to determine if prices are fair and reasonable.
0: You you said earlier that the one contract you found where there was reasonable profit was a case of of certified pricing data being provided because it had to be provided because it was over the Tina threshold, but were were you able to detect any you know noticeable differences in how reliable certified versus uncertified cost data was?
1: Um, oftentimes. The, one of the major differences is the uh, certification of the complete, accurate, and current when um, certified cost da- pricing data. So it comes with like an additional memo or or um, one pager that has that certification on it. But oftentimes we see some of the same information, um, you know, vendor quotes, non-recurring costs, make or buy decisions. Um, a lot of the time. The uncertified data may have some of what is provided in a certified package, but we find that the biggest difference is that certification.
0: Yeah, really what I'm getting at is I'm just wondering if, in most cases, uncertified data that's probably easier and cheaper for a company to produce is good enough.
1: I think in certain situations um, it may be enough for a contracting officer, um, but what we found in this report is that in all the times they asked for it, they didn't get it, and they certainly needed it in, in this case to be able to see that the prices that they um, were looking at weren't necessarily fair and reasonable at the time. Now, it was fair and reasonable based on the information they had, but you know, given our review and what we were able to um, obtain we found, again, $16.1 million in, in excess profits. You know, our report you know, highlights voluntary refunds, and a lot of our pricing reports have, um, in the past, highlighted the voluntary refunds, but this report is about more than just that. Um, change is needed, and again, in, in, our, in our report, contracting officers followed the current statutory and regulatory requirements, and they still resulted in this excess profits. Um, the sole source environment, you know, there aren't market forces or competitive pricing you know, for companies like Transdime or Transdime itself to control the prices. And then the, the, the biggest point is you know, DOD is, a, is at a point in which they need to determine if changes are needed in the acquisition process, especially in sole source environments, to provide contracting officers with the tools that they need to make the best purchasing decisions for the department.
0: Teresa Hull is the Assistant DoD Inspector General for Acquisition. She joined me to talk about the office's newly released audit on alleged overcharging by Transdime and the broader issues around cost data in sole source spare parts contracts. We'll post a link to the report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash on DoD. Short break here, and when we come back, we'll talk about what the Marine Corps has been doing to make more of its own spare parts, taking advantage of the latest advances in additive manufacturing. This is On D.O.D. on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbu. Back on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is On D.O.D. I'm Jared Serbu. In the first half of the show, we talked about the dilemma DOD's acquisition community faces when it's trying to get fair prices for spare parts in situations where there's only one supplier but there are also cases where there are zero suppliers in the manufacturing base for a particular part, especially when it comes to older weapons platforms. In situations like that, the military services have been talking a lot in recent years about the potential of 3D printing and other additive manufacturing technologies. The Marine Corps is really doing it, though. The service now has a 24-7 operation at the Marine Corps Advanced Manufacturing Operations Cell specifically designed to help Marines operating around the world figure out how to 3D print just about anything. Captain Matthew Friedel is a project officer at AMUC. He talked with Federal News Network's Scott Mascioni.
2: Additive manufacturing is, is generally 3D printing something uh, layer by layer. So I, I, call, I like to call it 2D, uh, and you just do it on top of each other over and over again. So very similar to how contour lines look on a, uh, a contour map. It's very uh, analogous to how 3D printing is done. Uh, the easiest thing to explain it is, is it's uh, just a hot glue gun uh that uh, that's used that uh, you kind of just outline the part, fill it in and then come up and do another layer and outline the part and fill it in. That's actually how it was uh invented. Uh, I think back in the 80s, the first uh, company to actually say, "Hey, I wonder if there's something about it." He he used a hot glue gun to uh make a little frog for his daughter, which was pretty neat. So, uh it's it it's instead of starting with a block of something, like whittling a piece of wood and and carving it into what you want, uh, it's starting just from the opposite and starting with nothing and building up everything that you would need to uh, to make your part.
3: So these 3D printers are becoming more ubiquitous throughout not only the Marines but in the military. What are you using these for and, and how mobile are they at this point?
2: So they're extremely mobile. So our, our smaller ones uh, could fit inside of a briefcase and you could take them wherever you'd need to go. So very portable and and very flexible uh, and pretty robust, too. You can bang them around and, and set them up, and they can generally calibrate themselves and, and operate. So uh, we use them all over the world. Uh, the Marine Corps generally uses these for prototyping and then end-use parts. So if a Marine needs a radio knob, uh, he can either go to our website and download the radio knob, uh, put it on his 3D printer, and then put it on the, the radio. Uh, or he can design his own. So he takes a broken one or uh, designs his own, and is able to uh, 3D print that and then, and then uh, put it on his radio. Now, there's, there's two aspects. He either can design it himself uh, or he can download it from our uh, online file repository uh, so that if he, he or she doesn't have any design knowledge, uh, they're still able to exploit you know, what 3D printing can do. And that's just for you know, fixing little bits and pieces uh, of vehicles or, uh, or systems. But if a Marine comes up with a new idea for something, if he sees a, uh, a part or a um, uh, some something of a, of a system that they think they can improve on, uh, they can actually iterate. So they, they, they print something off, they see if it works, uh, if it works, great. If not, it breaks, they iterate on it again. They print out another one uh, until they get the final product that they think they really like, and then they can send it to my office. Uh, my office can help validate that, that part and then help, uh, help send that out throughout the entire Marine Corps. So we start learning as an institution together on, on the best ways to do um, part design and, and system acquisition.
3: Interesting. So they're kind of building off what's already been built before, right?
2: Right. So we're not we're not losing knowledge as we go along. So normally, when you're you know you're at a unit you PCS and you take all the knowledge you ever had with you, and the next uh, person that comes in has to reacquire that knowledge and uh, and then learns and then they move on, but. Uh with this, you can kind of stand on the shoulders of those that you know came before you uh to put it pretty um <laughs> pretty deeply but uh but yeah, that's it so we're we don't we're not losing this information to this knowledge if i design a new uh part, i can then database that and then the next marine has access to uh what i did on that
3: so let's move to to your office and and what it actually does it's a twenty four seven help desk for these 3D printers. Um, what kind of services are you providing to these Marines?
2: So the, the office spun out of 3D printers. So we were initially the additive manufacturing office, but we came to find that it's not just 3D printing that's the revolution. It's, it's letting Marines know the technology and support infrastructure exists to help them either find any part they need, uh, and if they can't find it and we can't find it, that we can actually make it for them. Uh, so that's the big thing. Our, that We were just doing additive manufacturing, dabbling and seeing what we could do with it, uh, and then discovered that uh, there's this untapped, I guess, capability that, that Marines don't know about, that they can call my office or email my office, and uh, we're either able to find the part, and if we can't find it, then we'll go ahead and, and make the part and, and then mail it to them uh, wherever they are. So we want to be the easy buttons for, uh, for Marines uh, in the supply system.
3: So you would 3D print something if if you have to make it for them, I I assume?
2: Yep. We'd either 3D print it or we do something called a CNC. It's a computer numerical control. And that's the exact opposite of additive manufacturing. It's starting with a block of uh, metal and then milling it down uh, to what we need. So it's just uh, instead of having to go out and buy everything we need, and some things we can't even buy, and that's where we're having a lot of problems in our our system, there's a Parts and pieces on vehicles that haven't been made since uh, I, you know the 70s and 80s that we need to replace, and it's very hard to replace those parts. The vendor is either out of business or uh, we can't find the data on it. So we actually have to start making these uh, uh, by ones and twos, and uh, until the actual supply system and uh, manufacturers can can catch up.
3: So what goes into actually? Making this right, so before you can make it, you need to have it modeled for the computer so it knows exactly what to to build right so how can exactly. you do that with something from the seventies and eighties which may not have been programmed into a you know two thousand nineteen computer
2: yeah so our our engineer team is uh has some real smart folks on it, and so we can if we have the part, we can either three d scan it uh, or we can uh, just take basic uh, calipers and figure out the the dimensions on it and the tolerances and uh then put that into a three D uh computer aided design tool uh that's a more modern uh piece of equipment that we can use. So if we have the part, that's great. Uh that that gives us kind of a we turn it into detective mode and we start cutting that part up to figure out what kind of metal it was made out of and uh can start figuring out whoever would design that thing, you know, what things they designed it to, what strengths or uh, forces it was uh designed to, to take uh, to help us make that, that final part.
0: That's Captain Matthew Friedell, Project Officer at the Marine Corps Advanced Manufacturing Operations Cell, talking with Federal News Network Scott Massioni about the Marines' new 24-7 help center for 3D printing. He's back with us for a few more minutes after one more break. This is On DOD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jared Servin. Back on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network, this is On DoD. I'm Jared Serbu. I'm getting back to our conversation with Captain Matthew Friedel, Project Officer at the Marine Corps Advanced Manufacturing Operations Cell, talking with Federal News Network Scott Mascioni about AMOX around-the-clock capability to help Marines 3D print just about any item they might need but can't find.
3: So uh, how big is your office right now and, and how many people are working there? You have a 24-7 help desk, right? So th- that must take some serious manpower or at least some late nights.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, Marines are used to late nights, so <laughs> uh, so we're excited about the 24-7 aspect of it. Uh, we, we have a, 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 a staff NCOs and officers that are uh, able to help Marines through any kind of parts problem they have. So uh, if a Marine is it calls into this help desk, uh, they can either direct them to the uh, the personnel they need to talk to uh, to find their part uh, through traditional supply systems uh, or we actually start the process of getting the information from that marine to to start that engineering process to figure out if we have the data uh, and if we don't have the data, do we have access to it uh, and if we don 't have access to it, you know how do we make the data to then start uh, to start making these parts
3: and the parts that you're making so far are these how complex and how simple do they get.
2: So it varies. So our, our first 3D printed parts were uh, plastic because that, that was the only systems we had access to. And to be honest, three years ago, uh, metal printers weren't really as prevalent as they, they are today. So uh, real, I, I'd call it ha- low-hanging fruit, but very advantageous to a Marine that doesn't have them. So, uh, for example, we have a, a radio bracket in our Humvees that holds a, uh, holds a radio in place, and it breaks all the time. And if we were not to have that, the radio rattles around. It doesn't keep in good contact with uh, uh, the electronics it needs to keep in contact with, and Marines end up just holding it or taping something to to hold it in place. And uh, to order this part, uh, you actually can't order it. Um, There's no way to uh, specifically get that. So a Marine said, hey, I wonder if we could actually just start printing these uh, on site and reverse engineered it, got his calipers out and uh, put it into the computer-aided design model on the computer and, and printed one out. And uh, that was kind of like our aha moment that said, this Marine, with very basic knowledge of what additive manufacturing can do, now solved a problem that existed across the fleet, and the fleet meaning the entire Marine Corps. Uh, so now we can have these parts, and you know, the next person that, that wants to print that doesn't have to go back and engineer it and design it. They just hit print. And they can they can fix the part on their vehicle, so uh, that was the first neat example and then then they started rolling in uh snowshoe clips for uh uh for snowshoes uh we had a, a neat sled um, kind of bracket that we reverse engineered and uh were able to design a little bit better so it stopped breaking uh and then we started asking the question of what could we do with with metal systems and that's that's when we really started hitting our stride so brackets uh impellers uh small UAS, uh, really anything that's in the Marine Corps inventory in terms of parts and pieces um, can be uh, 3D printed, but the the question starts to become, should it be 3D printed? Uh, usually when, when you go through and 3D print something out of metal, it's uh, it's very expensive because uh, traditional manufacturing processes have been designed around um, very high quantities. If you want to make something, you want to make a lot of them to bring down the cost of tooling and setup for, for making that part. So Uh, If we're comparing additive manufacturing uh, directly with traditional manufacturing, uh, additive uh, on the whole is more expensive per part. But if we only need five of them and we don't have to incur the entire cost of tooling setup, uh, that's when AM really starts to shine. So uh, from plastic parts to metal parts, and uh, we're even starting to experiment with uh, larger structures such as uh, bridges and and, uh, buildings and everything like that
3: right and and I guess the thought process is a lot of these older uh parts companies are are not as willing to to build them again because the cost of doing it would just be astronomical just for five parts right
2: and that's yep, and that's where this this uh, process shines is when the government goes out and says, "Hey, we need you know five of these parts uh companies can go and bid on on making those five parts, but in general, it doesn't make sense to them because they would have to incur a pretty high cost in terms of setting up for tooling. And and manufacturing them. So uh, sometimes these bids go unanswered, and the government is in want of five, you know, uh, water pumps for a vehicle that was made back in the 70s, and uh, but nobody can either can make them or there's no profit for them to to make them. So uh, the trucks that need those water pumps then then sit broken uh, for a while. So that that's a real neat use case for uh, injecting additive manufacturing.
3: Now, when it comes to Actual licensing of these sorts of products. I mean, right now you're you're using uh, products that are mostly uh, uh, obsolete, right? So, um, Mm -hmm. is that an issue that you have run across yet, or uh, something that you're keeping in mind?
2: Absolutely. So, so our strength resides in our industrial base as a nation, and so protecting OEMs' intellectual property and their data. And what they have is, is key to our success as, uh, as a warfighting organization and as a nation. So we, we started out with that in mind. And right now, we're in a real exploratory phase, hand-in-hand uh, hand with OEM manufacturers. Uh, we're, we're very closely tied into America Makes, which is a uh, public-private partnership with industry, to start figuring out what this means. You know, now that we can turn things into data and data into things, you know, what does that mean for uh, intellectual property? um is it going to be like um you know when Napster was big you just go on and anything you want to print you can print right. um, i don't think it'll be like that uh just because there's no advantage for anybody uh in that field to do it so i think we'll be more closely aligned with the current iTunes model where if uh, an OEM does have data on a part let's say we need five of those water pumps and the government does not own that intellectual property um we go to the company and say hey we need five credits to print five of these water pumps. And um, we just we just order them that way and they say, okay, here's a credit for this one. Print it, verified, only printed one. You know, print two, verified, only printed two, and uh, and so on and so forth from there. So there's there's some models out there that we're looking at, but we are very much uh, tied into and thinking about uh, pr- protecting the, those OEMs data.
3: So a uh, bigger picture question for you, and probably my last one, is where is this – Office going to be going. Uh, what are your kind of next steps and hopes and, and dreams for it? And uh, you know, where does the military want to take it?
2: So I think our next steps as an office uh, are to communicate to the Fleet Marine Forces the capabilities that they're at their fingertips. That uh, no longer do we have to wait and have a, a truck or a tank broken. We have options to to fix that thing faster. And so. I think communication is our our big next step, but for advanced manufacturing across the uh, Department of Defense and across warfare, uh, these tools are not only available to us, they're they're available to those that would uh, uh, do us harm as well. And they can exploit them just as as well as we can. So we need to start learning them and uh, and getting better at the the processes. Uh, I don't think we want to be overcome, you know, by uh, by our adversaries and uh, and fixing our, our trucks and our systems faster. Uh, will be of benefit to
0: us. That's Matthew Friedel, Project Officer at the Marine Corps Advanced Manufacturing Operations Cell, talking with Federal News Network's Scott Mascioni. Earlier in the hour, we talked with Teresa Hull, the Assistant DOD Inspector General for Acquisition, about the IG's newly released audit on alleged overcharging by Transdime and the broader issues around cost data in sole-source spare parts contracts. If you missed any of this week's program, we'll post the full show at federalnewsnetwork.com slash on DOD. You can also listen via our podcast. Subscribe on Podcast One, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast platform. That's it for this week's edition of On DoD. Thanks, as always, for tuning in. I'm Jared Serbia So long. You've been listening to On DoD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Tune in Wednesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.
1: Kristen here, reminding you not to do things. What I mean is, with same-day delivery for everything from
0: gifts to groceries, you only have to do the things you want to do. To not do the other things,
1: visit shipped.com. That's S-H-I-P-T.com. Any workout, any mood, any time.